Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy, a particular thank you to Dr. Doolittle for all his years of work. We have loved listening to you, buddy. And uh, sorry I'm on air and I can't come out and give you, a, I don't know, some kind of distance hug or something to say goodbye, but uh, it's been great having you as part of our Sunday morning group for so long. In the studio with me now is Chris Capier. Good morning, sir. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. It's good to have you in the in the actual oh, studio. It's, it's good great. to be here. In vivo. Oh, yeah. Uh, whatever that means. It's, uh, is that like... Yeah, anyway. It means in studio. Yeah, in studio. And on the line, we have uh, Dr. Jen. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Pleasure to see you as always. It's good to see you. And Dr. Ewan is there as well. How are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's uh, it's a sunny day, uh, which is rare at the moment in Melbourne. But hey, gotta love the La Nina. It's good stuff. Love the rain. Uh, I know people don't like it, but I love it. I love a nice, uh, cool start to the summer. Just ease in, you know. Torture me in March, if you will, but ease me into December because I can't handle it. Anyway, today is our second last show for the year. It is the last show that we'll have guests in the studio, and uh, next week we'll have, uh, we have a big show planned for next week, which is going to be cool, but we are going to start off today with some news. Dr. Ewan, um, you're looking at hippopotamuses, I believe. I am looking at hippopotamuses, and I'm going to go all meta on you because apparently it's really cool to be meta these days. That's what Zuckerberg <laughs> tells us and others. So <laughs> this, is a, this is a really fascinating story um, from uh, Africa, from um, the Mara uh, region. And, and um, what's really fascinating about this is just all the linkages between the different species. So a set of scientists were basically told by the Maasai that they kept seeing uh, fish kills and they were concerned about these fish kills, and they pointed the finger at pesticides um, and, I guess, agricultural use. And the scientists sort of decided to look at this. Um, And what it turns out is they think is the culprits are actually hippos. Um, But the story gets much more interesting from there. So basically, um, for those who don't know, hippos are obviously herbivores. Uh, During the night especially, they come out of the water onto land. They eat lots of, uh, you know, grass vegetation. And they go back into the water, and they poop a lot. And I mean a lot. (laughs) <laughs> so they've measured how much hippos poop and it's several, you know, tons, you know, o- over a year for, for each um, hippo. So it's, it's a lot. And that changes the water chemistry quite substantially. But what's interesting, they actually looked at the, the biogeochemistry of these areas where hippos were living in these waterholes. And what they found that in some of these waterholes that are really, really high density populations of hippos, there's really interesting, interesting things going on with their microbiomes and their guts. And so the amount of hippos and obviously the amount of nutrients going to that water profoundly changed the water chemistry and so much so that it basically makes it toxic to some organisms, particularly fish. And so what happens is when you have a flood or a storm event that washes all that water down into, you know, a nearby water hole and then the dissolved oxygen drops really, really quickly, suspended organics go up and it basically clogs the gills of the fish and so forth and they can't breathe and they die. And so... That's, that's kind of, I think, interesting in, in itself, but what's even more fascinating is it actually looked at these microbiomes of the hippos. So you imagine all these hippos, they're in the water, they're drinking the same water that they're pooping in, which is pretty gross. <laughs> mm. Tasty. And, and 
they look at their guts and they they basically are hypothesizing that they've got these microbiomes that allow them to basically live in such a you know quite a challenging environment but the bacteria themselves are actually living in the water too and so they're actually calling this a meta gut so rather than having just a microbiome inside one animal you've essentially got a whole ecosystem that is functioning like an organism and what they also showed was that basically when you have these events when water got flushed from one edge to another that the bacteria themselves appear to be changing the biogeochemistry of the water to favour themselves. Hmm. So I think it's it's a really interesting example, I think, again, of just, you know, our understanding of microbiomes, which we all know is advancing rapidly and it's become a really hot topic in the last decade or so. Yeah. Um, and, and the linkages between, you know, multiple species in a system. And now what they're sort of interested in is saying, well, okay, if this metagut exists, you know, in these waterholes for hippos... What about other species? So, you know, fish, as an example, in invertebrates, they're also eating hippo poo and they're drinking water hippo, you know, when they're, when they're swimming through it. What does that do to their microbiomes? So it's, it's a really fascinating area of research. And um, if anyone's got the time, I've, I've linked to it on, on Twitter with Einstein and Gogo's uh, tag. So follow the story by the researchers themselves because it's an absolutely fantastic romp of a scientific mm. story. So I really recommend it. <laughs> it's great stuff. And I like to, once again, we see that uh, humans weren't first. I mean, we weren't the first doing those uh, poo transfers, were we? Sounds like the, <laughs> no, the hippos right. were way yeah. ahead of us on the poo transfers. There's a lot of faithful transplants going on. Yeah, we weren't the <laughs> only ones doing that. They've got it. They, I mean, to be fair, they're doing it in the bath, and we haven't done that yet. But you know, there's, I'm, I'm sure there's. Some, Thank you. I'm sure there's some hot tubs out there that should be examined. And uh, anyway, we're going too far. Uh, Doctor Chris KP's lost it. Oh, yeah. uh, Dr. Jen, what do you got for us? I was I was just thinking about you and your bathtub, Shane, but I, I shan't go any further with that. I'm not process. sure. I don't know uh, where did that come from. I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Well, look, I don't know about I don't know about you guys, but two years into this pandemic, I feel like my creativity is at an all time low, and so some research that I came across this week uh, out of Paris really caught my attention. And the thinking behind this research goes back to Thomas Edison, who apparently claimed that he only ever slept four hours a night and he thought sleeping was a waste of time. But he had this particular habit. So the story goes that Edison used to nap while holding a steel ball in each of his hands. And the idea was that he wanted that just as he nodded off to sleep, he wanted those steel balls to slip out of his fingers, crash on the ground, and the sound would wake him up. And as a result, he'd be able to recall these thoughts that he was having just as he fell asleep, which he considered to be when he was most creative. Because most of us have no recollection of what we're thinking about just before we're falling asleep. Salvador Dali is reported to have used exactly the same technique. You know, two fairly creative people. So these researchers in Paris decided that they wanted to test whether we do in fact have this short period of very heightened creativity when you're in that kind of semi-lucid state just as you're drifting into sleep. So this phase of sleep is called N1 or um, non-rapid eye movement sleep stage one. It only lasts about 5% of the night, but according to these researchers, it's really understudied. So in N1, in this stage, the idea is that you're seeing, you're having creative experiences. You might be hearing things or seeing colours or, or bits of dreams, but you are still aware of what's going on in the room around you. So it is this kind of semi-lucid state. 
So the way they tested it was to give 100-odd people who were known to be very good at falling asleep quickly, that was the requirement, they gave them a maths problem. And this problem was one that you could work out manually by hand. It took a while, but if you could spot that there was a hidden trick, if you could clue into this this, uh, kind of hidden rule, then you could solve it really, really quickly. So of the 100-odd people, the people who immediately solved it, they were excluded. They didn't want those people in the study. But the rest of them were given the problem and then after they'd thought about it for a bit, they were asked to lie down in a darkened room holding an object and asked to just kind of have a rest. And at the same time, they were monitoring their eye movements and their brain waves and everything to know who actually fell asleep. And what it turned out was that after they'd had their rest and they were given the maths problem again, those in the study who had gone into this N1 sleep stage, they were three times more likely to solve the problem than people who'd stayed awake the whole time. But even more more interestingly, they were six times more likely to solve it than people who'd actually fallen asleep properly. So people who'd passed through N1 but then had gone into proper sleep and didn't wake up when they'd, you know, the, the object had either not fallen from their hands at all or they hadn't woken up when it was fallen. So this all goes to suggest that we do have this really creative period just before we fall asleep. And if you've got a problem to solve, <laughs> fall asleep We're holding good. something. They reckon the ball doesn't work, though. They said the ball's no good. You didn't wake up from it. They suggest instead a glass, which kind of <laughs> really does the glass have to be half full of wine so that you oh, fall asleep as the wine splatters? <laughs> yeah, that sounds like that. That sounds a bit dangerous. I have to say though, I, I'm uh, I'm not with you on the uh, not creative after two years. I'm peaking after two years. I'm absolutely peaking. And I've had a thought, Jen. You know, you and I both teach a lot of people how to publicly speak, and we spend a lot of time giving feedback after people do that. I think from now on, I'm just going to hold one of these metal balls, and partway through their presentation, I'm just going to drop it to indicate I've nodded off. And then I can just leave. I don't have to say anything more. And, you know, that's it. End of story, right? Um, How will that work on Zoom? That's my only question. Oh, we'll, make, we'll work it? it out. We'll work it out. Don't you worry. It'll be a big virtual okay. ball that will make a thud. But, um, okay. Count me in, Shane. Right. Let's do it. Let's do I it. Think that's, you not, were, that's not harsh at all. I think if you were to hold the, uh, the glass of wine over the keyboard, that would At least once. Yeah, I think uh, there's all sorts of... Uh, now, speaking of dropping big metal balls because you're nodding off, Chris KP. <gasps> thank you for, thank you for waking me up. Uh, so I wanted to just... Uh, this article caught my eye because it's one of those things that you just know when, some, when, you, when you see an absolute fact, like in a textbook, um, or just a... a, a, a a, a, uh, a shared understanding of something that's really simple, you immediately start to question it. So when I tell you that water freezes at zero degrees Celsius, you immediately go, wow, but does it really, you know, always? Mm. Turns out, no, it doesn't, no. Uh, as it happens. It's a good guide, you know. It's, it's good enough for almost everything we do, but it's not always the case. And it matters sometimes too, because there are, for example, species of frog um, that basically... They hibernate um, and they stay essentially frozen while hibernated. Now, if if the water was freezing inside their cells, what yeah. happens is it gets a bit bigger and it pokes holes in them. They end up becoming, you know, just a yeah. bag of frog jus, um, which is most unpleasant. Turns out it doesn't actually form ice crystals, so they can be hibernating in below zero temperatures, but not actually have ice crystals. And there's lots of other examples. Are, are they a frogs filled with antifreeze? Uh, well, turns out they don't need to be. So this oh, is the interesting okay. thing. I'm glad you asked. Right, I mean, I don't, know, I don't Wasn't know. Aware of that. There may be antifreeze frogs, uh, not that I'm aware of. And if there are, we could probably juice them for their antifreeze. Um, <laughs> 100% natural. Okay. Um, where do you find a frog's nipples? 
You're distracting me. Now, listen. Um, the, yes, anyway, so the point is these <laughs> researchers at the University of Houston, uh, were, they were looking at the impact of size on freezing water. And they started with, uh, with water droplets that are 150 nanometers across. That's like, you know, virus territory. That's really mm-hmm. quite tiny. Um, but they got smaller than that. And it turns out once you get below sort of you know, 10 nanometers, the temperature below which you can freeze water yeah, without it actually, rather, the temperature below which you can get water cold enough but not freezing gets really low. So they got down to two nanometer water droplets and they had them on really, really soft surfaces. Turns out you can knock the, uh, the freezing temperature of water down to about minus 44 degrees Whoa. Celsius. Yeah, which is real cold. That's real cold. Pretty much doesn't have wow. it. Wow. Yeah. Um, mm. So why does that matter? Well, frogs might be interested. It might turn out that the frogs that don't have antifreeze don't need antifreeze because they can get the water in small enough droplets or small enough contexts or have the right surface area for them. The other one that I think is fascinating is that the, the place where the temperature gets cold quickly is not natural always. Cold temperatures occur at man-made interfaces. Yep. Think aerospace. When you're flying around way up in the uh, in the atmosphere somewhere, the temperature drops real quick, and it can have an impact on all kinds of goings on on the in the uh, in the airplane. So mm. this might be a way of understanding the right surfaces, so that the droplets are small enough, may be a place where we don't get ice, even though we're getting freezing cold. So next time someone tells you that water freezes at zero degrees, raise an eyebrow and be a smartass. Um, <laughs> and say no. <laughs> yeah, be more specific about what yes, you're talking about. Be that person yeah, at the quiz that, night. Be that person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Objection, Your Honour. <laughs> so you exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we're going to have to take a break for some music. Uh, Dr. Jen, Dr. Ewan, we'll be chatting to you guys a little bit later in the show. Chris KP's got something special planned for all three of us that we are all completely <laughs> in the dark about at the moment. Who knows what's going to go on there? Cannot, cannot wait. Yeah, it's it. What was that, you? Looking forward to oh, it. Christmas forward to it. Yeah, is yeah. going to come early. Oh, oh, very don't, good. Christmas yeah, don't get overexcited. <laughs> I think uh, that, that's... Uh, let's not talk it up too much. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very sage advice. <laughs> it's Chris. Uh, all right, guys. I'll chat to you a little bit later. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein to Go Go on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane, and on the line with us now is Professor David Bishop from the Institute of well, for Health and Sport at Victoria University. Good morning, David. How are you going? Yeah, good morning, Shane. Very well. Yourself? I'm good. Now, we're going to talk, uh, just for everyone listening, just um, prepare yourself. We're going to talk about exercise, which uh, for me is, you know, hasn't been good lately. Um, but exercise and mitochondria is the, the topic of the day. So, David, just give us a little bit on mitochondria. We've talked about it many, many times um, over the years on the show. But for those who aren't familiar with mitochondria, what, what does that do in their bodies? Yeah, I, I think you'll see it classically always described as the as the powerhouse of the cells. So it's almost a cliche, but mm. they're the they're the little energy generators throughout the body that are producing your energy. So they're working while you're even while you're sleeping. So the energy that you need to wake up in the morning, go for a walk, run for the bus or whatever. That's the mitochondria, and obviously, when you're sleeping, they're producing a lower a lower amount of energy, but they'll respond to whatever you're doing. So if you if you do have to run for that bus, then they'll respond and they'll produce more energy, so that you've got the energy you need to do whatever whatever it is you have to do. Mm. So are we talking about energy that's stored chemically and and then converted into other forms of chemical energy or electrical energy? What 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 exactly is happening there? 
Yeah, sorry. So I guess from the from the basics, you know, we only have a very little amount of energy that's actually stored in our muscles, and it's only it's interesting, you know, only, there's only enough energy really for a few seconds, so we have to constantly be able to to regenerate it. And and what the mitochondria do is they take the energy that's contained in food, they the food gets broken down, and they'll convert that energy into a form of energy that our our muscles and brain and our other 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 systems can use to do what they need to do. Mm. And now the the connection between mitochondria and exercise. So this is interesting because I'm suspecting what you're going to tell us is that this is a two-way deal, whereas I suppose a lot of people always thought of this as one way. You have the mitochondria, they produce energy, you go and do exercise, good to go. But how, how, do, how do the two interact? Yeah, I guess probably a, maybe a simple analogy that people are familiar with is, I guess, weight training. So what happens is when you, you know, when you lift weights, it puts a lot of stress on your muscle. And in simplistic terms, your muscles respond and go, look, if I can get a little bit bigger, then the next time I lift that same weight, it's going to feel easier. Mm. And the mitochondria are a little bit the same. So when you, when you exercise, they'll be stressed and they'll feel the stress of the, you know, within the muscle, the changes that are happening. And they'll respond so that hopefully the, the next time you do that same exercise it's not going to feel quite as stressful and it's also not going to it's not going to lead to as great a change in uh, in your homeostatic system so the how your physiology responds to the exercise the next time and yeah you know, i guess most people know that you know the very first time you go for an exercise and you're huffing and puffing and hopefully after a week or a couple of weeks that same walk or that same jog will feel easier. Mm. I suppose what we often think about, though, in that circumstance is our sort of cardiovascular health. Um, so whenever we talk about exercising and if, you do, if you're huffing and puffing and so forth, people say, well, yeah, I'm unfit, my cardiovascular health is poor. But what you're talking about is a bit different to that. It's sort of more a whole body system around our cells' ability to you know, give us the energy we need. Yeah, and I mean, you don't, that's a really good point because you need both. So... Our mitochondria use food and also oxygen from the air to, to produce um, the energy for your muscles. And so you have to get the oxygen to your muscles. In, so it doesn't, wouldn't matter if you've got you know, millions and billions of mitochondria. If you can't get oxygen to your muscles, that's no good. So as you said, the adaptations to exercise, your heart and your lungs will improve to be able to get the oxygen to the muscles. But again, if you had an amazing ability to get oxygen you know, from your heart and lungs to get oxygen to your muscles. But if you didn't have the, the mitochondria to convert that oxygen into energy, then, then that doesn't help. So you absolutely, mm. you need both. But I guess that as you're alluding to, you know, we can't see inside our muscles. So the thing that we feel is our heart and our breathing. And that's probably the things that we notice that get easier. And they're probably the more obvious signs that you're getting um, more comfortable with the exercise that you're doing yeah now i remember something from an interview i did uh, maybe uh, could have been 12 or 15 years ago now but it was around this idea of sedentary behavior in the workplace and how and correct me if i'm wrong here but at the time the thinking was if you sat in an office chair all day and then just went to a gym at the end of the day for an hour 
those two things didn't offset one another like there were different types of things going on in the body and and the sort of activities that the um the gym workout um sort of helped you with didn't necessarily remove the damage from the sedentary behavior that you're having all day i mean how does that sort of play into our understanding of mitochondria and you know like if i just if i just ride a bike for a while but i don't use my upper body i mean what does that mean in terms of my health and my ability to do new things it's a really great question and um yeah that might be one for a little bit of homework for me because i haven't seen too much actual research on on that and i think you're right i would suspect that um you know what we've seen is that that you know absolutely the mitochondria respond to exercise and they also equally respond to if you do nothing then mm. then they'll they'll um they'll decrease i would be surprised but it'd be a great research project is to if exercise doesn't offset the detriment, detrimental effects of sedentary living on the mitochondria. Mm. But, you know, as we've been saying, you know, there's more than the mitochondria. So I think the exercise could probably offset the detrimental effects on the mitochondria, but not some of the other detrimental yeah. effects that are, that are happening. Yeah, fascinating. Um, a very complex scenario, obviously, that we're starting to learn more about. Now, when, when you look at the mitochondria, I mean, this isn't just you guys saying, how do you feel? I mean, you, you're measuring something in the lab with regards to the mitochondria and its response. How do you go about that and what are you measuring? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of cool videos uh, that people are... Oh, maybe they shouldn't watch it because then they won't volunteer for our studies. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a re- relatively common procedure and it started off in um, Sweden. And, and it took, I mean, it's a medical procedure, procedure. So we use a muscle biopsy technique. And so what it is, is we take... A, there's a what's called a biopsy needle and we have a, you know, a trained doctor who takes a small amount of muscle from the from someone's in this normally the leg because that's the easiest place mm. and it's probably you know it's equivalent to yeah maybe a dozen sort of grains of rice and so we take that out of the out of the person's leg if they let us and sign the informed <laughs> consent and um we can then with some equipment we have in the lab basically what we do we have the mitochondria in a solution and we give it all the food that it needs so we give it some some glucose and we give it some oxygen and we can measure how good it is at converting that that the energy that we supply into um into the atp which is the energy currency that we use in our muscles Hmm. and presumably you know you have some modeling or some measure of how much exercise that individual's been doing so you're mapping exercise levels versus versus that is that right yeah, exactly. And that's probably it's probably the main you know, interest in my lab is, you know, what we kind of work on is this idea of exercise as medicine. And, you know, we're saying like normally, like if you go to a doctor, they don't say, you know, say, well, take this medicine and you say how much and they don't go, oh, you know, whatever you feel like. You know, it's a precise dose and timing and everything of the medicine. So that's what we're interested in is, you know, how much exercise do you need to get these different adaptations and so in my lab we've done those in some of these studies is you know if we give different intensities of exercise or different durations of exercise we see quite different mitochondrial adaptations and I guess we're trying to work through a bit more of a a, sci- a scientific prescription so that people can get the best results out of exercise. Mm. I'm going to hand you over to Chris KP now. Thanks, David. Um, when you um, so when you're uh, looking at altered exercise regimes and looking at the impact on, on mitochondria, is it 
completely universal, or is it uh, limited to particular muscle groups? If I'm if I'm on the exercise bike, uh, am I going to get the same mitochondrial impact, uh, you know, on my shoulders <laughs> that I might get in my thighs? Yeah, no, brilliant question. So I guess one of the you know circling back to some of the earlier discussion. So when if you ex- if you go swimming or cycling or running, you're probably going to get similar adaptations in your heart because you you. Yeah, we've only got one heart, so you're going to need the same heart to pump yep. regardless of what muscle you're doing. But the adaptations in the muscle are going to be... You really have to use the muscle to get the adaptation. So, again, I think a really obvious example is weight training. So, you know, you can go and lift all the beach weights you want and get big arms and a big chest, mm. but it's not going to change your leg muscles. And it's pretty much the same with the mitochondria. So if you do running exercise, you'll improve the mitochondria in your legs, but you'd need to do some sort of arm cranking or some other use of your arms to affect the mitochondria in your arms. My goodness, you've given us a lot of hard work to do, David. Look, it's fascinating <laughs> hearing about this because I think it's a it's a very different view to, to the way I think a lot of people view exercise, as I said, mainly around the cardiovascular system and and that, not not the, the, the way in which we get the energy throughout our body. So, look, great work. Um, I know you guys had this published in Nature Communications, a very prestigious journal. Congratulations, and thanks so much for chatting to us on Einstein Go Go today. Brilliant. Appreciate the time, guys. Have a good day. No problems. Folks, that was Professor David Bishop from the Institute of Health and Sport at Victoria University. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest for today. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go. On the line with us now from Monash University is uh, Larissa Nichols. In fact, she was on the line for, you know, all of a minute there, and I think we just lost her. So hopefully she'll come back in a second. Larissa Nichols is from the Faculty of Information Technology, and we are hoping to have a chat to her about the opportunities for better energy management in the pandemic. Chris KP, has your energy use changed during the pandemic? Uh, yes and no. So, so we're... Um we're off grid, uh, and it was partly, uh, you know, not our, it wasn't wasn't our first choice to be honest, but it turned out to be the most cost effective thing where we are at in the, in the bush a bit. And the thing that has changed, I mean, what it means is that we got, you start to get conscious of your mm. energy use. Like mm. we've got a, it's a pretty big system, but it's not you know infinite, so you get pretty uh, pretty careful about running the uh, oven at the same time that the dryer is running, for example, <laughs> and and you start to measure the little things. Oh, that monitor's on, that TV's yep. on, the little things add up. Um, the biggest impact on us, though, has not been use of electricity per se. It's the impact when there's a power cut. Right. So, firstly, you feel guilty <laughs> because everybody else around you is dark and you're there going, oh, yeah, we've still got everything. It feels a little <laughs> awkward. No one said anything in the area, thank goodness. But, yeah. you know. But the biggest, the, but the problem is that, uh, you know, half a day later, we'll lose internet because either the, either the, uh, internet towers generator has run out of juice or they've turned it off to reset i don't know what goes on exactly but the first time it happened i was completely at my wit's end I, i've been so cocky about having <laughs> everything running and suddenly i lost the one thing so there was no streaming there was no work calls it's kind of a blessing actually i read a book but it was yeah um the power is not everything but it does does make you think it certainly makes you conscious of what you're using uh especially in winter 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, um, I suppose in my case, I, I was expecting the our power bills to go up quite substantially, being being home. But I think uh, during the day, with the exception of sort of my my laptop and so forth, um, we found we're not using a lot of extra stuff, and mm-hmm. a lot of the the stuff that's costing us money, yes. you know, fridges and yeah. you know things of that nature, with it, you're on all the time anyway, um, and you know. A bit of an increase, but not substantially so. And I think I, I, I certainly um, was using a lot more, um, I guess, problematic materials in driving to work yeah. every day, um, yeah. which I'm I'm no longer doing. So that that's a that's a real bonus. Now I think we we've we've managed to talk about energy for a good uh, two minutes, and we're, Chris <laughs> KP and I are pretty boring. But I think we have Larissa back on the line. Larissa, how are you going? Can you hear us? Good, oh, thanks. Sorry about the tech dropout. No problem at all. Now, you've been, I was just saying to our, our listeners, you've been looking at some of the opportunities for better energy management um, for Australians during the pandemic. Give us an idea first up, um, what, what's changed? What things do you think have, have changed with energy usage, with people being at home, working from home, schooling at home? There's certainly been quite a lot of changes, particularly when we were locked down during winter. Mm. So a lot of people told us that they were using more heating, more electronics, um, more cleaning, more cooking. So they saw their bills going up. And then other people sort of saw the opportunity to, if they had solar, they could uh, use more of that production during the daytime because they were working or studying from home. It's yeah. quite a lot of shifts because of the pandemic. Yeah. Now, now you've been working on a particular, what you've called a demand management opportunities report, um, which has essentially, you know, this is part of the Emerging Technologies Research Lab there at Monash Uni. And you've put out sort of 15 sort of tailored approaches to better uh, align our energy use, I suppose, with, with what we have available to us and so forth. So can you give us some highlights from that report? Like what are some of the big things that we, we need to be doing? Sure. So we've got this energy system that's rapidly changing. Mm. We're getting more and more solar and wind energy into our grid all the time. So even if people don't have solar on their homes, on their roofs, there's this chance to actually use a lot of that really nice, clean, renewable energy out of the system. Um, So that means um, for, for households that are really interested in sustainability... Um, the timing of energy use can really make a difference. And they can be, if say they're using it in the middle of the day, they'll be using far more clean energy than if they were using it um, at night time when there's no wind. Mm. Um, so we think the energy sector could come up with some ways to actually let people know when our energy grid is full of renewable energy. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I suppose, um, I'm not sure about your experience, but you know, at my age, I remember growing up with the idea that you, you did your washing and stuff at night. Um, but this is, we've, we've switched now to 180, right? I mean, we actually need people to be doing the opposite of that. So for anyone who grew up with that mindset, I think we, I can't even remember why we did that. It might have been cheaper at the time, but you know, we, we have to sort of switch that around now to when our renewable energy is, is online. Yeah, it's flipping it completely on its head. Um, so we all tend to have this sense of electricity being cheaper at night. Mm. Um, For most of us, it isn't. It's just this historical understanding because our hot water systems, electric hot water systems, were set up to heat overnight because that's when demand was so low and they needed that spare energy used up. But now it's the opposite, particularly when it's sunny. Um, There's just vast amounts of solar energy going into the grid and it actually is having a little bit of trouble coping with it. Um, so for the energy system to work better, 
um, and to keep actually accepting all of the renewables that are available in the middle of the day rather than switching off some of those solar farms or wind farms. Uh, the more of that that we can use it, the better. Yeah. With with all of this working from home um, stuff that we've sort of, uh, you know, some of us have gotten used to because of the pandemic, I suspect a lot of people are going to be doing it long into the future because they realise being stuffed in, you know, fluorescent lit hell holes that they were working in isn't necessarily for them. Um, does this mean changes in sort of home design or, you know, things of that nature to, to more appropriately reflect, you know, a, a need to have people in, in the home more often than they probably were before? Yeah, you're right. It's not a short-term shift. And what we've seen is because there's often multiple people at home working and studying together. Everybody's a bit on top of each other Mm. compared to how it was before. So we see people setting up their garages, bungalows, their rumpus rooms. All of these extra spaces are getting used for a lot more of the day. And often those um, places aren't very well insulated. The garage doors Mm. just let Mm. all the heat in in summer. Um, There's no insulation in the sheds. And so while we wouldn't have probably put a heater or an air conditioner into those spaces in the past, now we're thinking about doing it because we need to be comfortable and able to concentrate when we're working and studying. So there's this real potential for our energy bills to blow out um, if we're doing that. And so we've got to look at how to make those places more efficient. Yeah. Presumably, too, there, you know, maybe this is starting to happen. I don't know, but there may be a move towards people wanting larger homes as well as a result of, as exactly as you said, you know, so many people in the same space on top of one another. Whereas in the past, you know, you could kind of handle a few hours at night when everyone got home. But now, if everyone's there, you know, it's like, oh, give me some space. So are we seeing that shift at all? Is that expected? We are seeing people put a lot of effort into their homes now to make Mm. them more of spaces that can cope uh, and and make us comfortable and happy in all sorts of conditions, particularly because of the pandemic. So people were stuck there. So they started doing a lot of renovations and expansions. There's a big interest in pools because Mm. of the pandemic. So people wanted to be able to have that exercise or relaxation, even just little plunge pools that might be heated still. Um, so, and then of course we've seen over the years people getting home theatres and this idea of the home being our kind of our retreat and our almost like a resort, some people treat it, they're putting more and more into it. And of course house prices fuel that. Um, interest, I guess, in, in putting more money into the home. Yeah. So, Larissa, just before we let you go, where, where would people go to find this report or, or the information you know, pertinent to householders if they were looking for it? Okay. Um, if they just Google Digital Energy Futures, that's the name of the project that we're working mm-hmm. on, um, and, and maybe Admonish, uh, you'll find a, a site and it's got all of our reports from that project there. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Uh, Keep up this good work. I think uh, these transitions are important and we can't sort of take our foot off the pedal in terms of just assuming everything's going going to go back to the way it was, you know, years ago. So, um, you know, keep keep it up, uh, keep us informed and hopefully we'll see some of the transition, especially with the power companies that we need. Thanks for chatting to us today. Thanks, Shane. Folks, that was Dr. Larissa Nichols from the Faculty of Information Technology at Monash University. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements and we'll be back in just a few moments with Chris KP. He's got some big planned. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. It's uh, 
about time when we hand over the Chris KP to run us through, I don't know what he's got planned. He's been very secretive this week. I wouldn't normally be secretive. You know that I'm a, I'm a Sharon Karen um, tiny cup of guy. Um, but I, I had a I had a half-ass concept and I thought I'd um, give it some more ass. So uh, what I did is I asked each of you, <laughs> each of the uh, each of the, my, my three co-hosts, um, you and Jen and Shane, to give me something. Just give me one little topic concept idea um, and it's on me then to try and bring them together in some way. Because as you have often noted, Dr. Shane, mm. science is everywhere. Apparently. Um, and yes, and after you know this program, <laughs> which has been on air for I think three and a half thousand years, you know, there's yeah. no shortage of people who are able to come up with interesting things to talk about. So it shouldn't be difficult to do this. The question is, you know, uh, and as, as you were noted earlier in the program, we are all in one great big meta microbiome. It shouldn't be hard to find the connections. Hmm. That was what I thought before I asked you. Um, so, <laughs> so the really cool thing for listeners is that nobody else, apart from me, knows what the three things. I think that's. I'm, I'm assuming you haven't shared your things. No. Okay, you've. I been mean, I assumed. I assumed of you, and it was just something to do with poo. Uh, you know. Uh, well, let me let me just <laughs> let me tell you what the. I'll tell you what the topics are. Uh, I don't need to define, tell you who's who's. That doesn't matter, I don't think. Um, you might be able to work that out. I'll tell you what they are, and then I'll tell you what I, I'll, I'll take you through the story as I think it's panned out. Topic one uh, is the role and the value of experts, hmm. especially in an era, an era of misinformation. Topic two is around cognitive biases. And topic three is around geologic time. Yeah, one is, one is you and two is Jen. I know these two. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting you should say that. How because did you ever guess, Shane? It's interesting, isn't it, Jen, though, that, that, um, that uh, Shane's bias has led him to that assumption. Yeah. Um, he just happened, he just I've, I've built that up over geological well, you time. Ha- you happen to be correct. <laughs> Um, so what what year are you from, Shane? Well, the, the, we, we, the we, may able, we may be able to work that out now. So, yeah, so let's let's start there. Let's start with it with uh, with geologic time. So, the story about geologic time, and you know, you would have people will have would have heard bits of these things depending on their experience. Um, you know, things like uh, well, so we we divide it into eons. Uh, of which there are four, I think, and those are divided into eras and those are divided into periods. So, um, for example, the I'm going to pick one out here. Um, the Proterozoic Eon is the time when photosynthetic organisms started to appear, which is important because that was when you started getting oxygen in large um, quantities in the atmosphere, etc., etc., etc. So that led to changes in climate, which led to changes in biology, um, by way of example. So those eons are of different duration because they're defined by things that happen, not by time. So mm. more like an hourly thing. Mm. Um, and, and that's, you know, obviously, you know, people who are experts in the field need to argue about where those boundaries are drawn. So they've got some sort of shared, um, you know, parameters to work within. And the best example um, is the Jurassic period, which was about 145 to 200 million years ago, which was in the middle of the Mesozoic era, which was in the Phanozoic Eon. Not that you need to know these things. There is no test. But there's an example of how this fits together. <laughs> can, I just, can we just pause yeah, on sure. the, uh, the amazing dominance of the dinosaur period and how good they were? We can. I mean, we've only been around a few hundred thousand years, and we've screwed the place up already. Well, I think I think we're high achievers in that sense. And, and to be fair, the dinosaurs, it wasn't them that caused the problem. <laughs> no, exactly. Imagine, imagine that. Well, yeah. To be fair, dinosaurs are not dead. They're just birds. So Good there point. Go. Yeah, yeah, there's good point. All, one in every crowd. I do feel like they're, uh, you know, it's kind of like they just can't let, let it go. It's over. Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it, you guys. Anyway, so, so of course, the thing, when you talk about those kinds of periods of time, millions of years or billions of years, and the Earth's about four and a half billion years old, when you talk about that, those numbers don't mean much to most people. 
They just don't. They're, mm. they're a scale of understanding. We don't live like that. Mm. So they're outside. We can mathematically maybe you understand it, but beyond that, most people don't. However, some people do. So generally speaking, we have to focus in on some event for people to understand it, you know, whether it's a dinosaur or something else. But there are people who work inside these numbers all the time. And because they work in it all the time, they get a real understanding of it, a real appreciation of how it fits together, etc. Um, now, anyone, in theory, could get to that point. With a bit of training, some education, uh, you grow an appreciation. You can just read the internet for a while. You'll get some appreciation if you want. If you spend a lot of time thinking about it, though, and discussing it and modelling it and considering the implications of it, you get a really good, deep, nuanced sense of it. Somewhere around that point in time, you become an expert. Now, there are people who, because of their jobs, do this. You know, paleontologists <laughs> do it. Uh, geologists do it. Evolutionary biologists need to understand this stuff with a level of, with a level of expertise. Um, so experts, of course, depend upon their expertise. It just makes sense. A pilot needs to understand how to fly a plane, even in changing conditions, mm. otherwise the plane doesn't fly anymore. I don't need to understand that. I can have a passing understanding of aerodynamics, but I don't need to understand it. Experts live and die by their expertise. Yeah, and in fact, in the aerodynamics is a great example because there's a threshold there. Like, I know enough about planes <laughs> to be dangerous? that make me not want to get on planes. <laughs> but if I knew a bit more about planes, I'd probably feel better about it because I'm not an expert. You know, I'm in the middle ground, which is... A nasty place to be. Well, absolutely, yes. And But experts, of course, the strength of an expert, a real expert, is the other experts because they are held to account by them. Mm. You are constantly mm. drawn into your expertise is challenged by other experts because they know what to challenge you on and when to and how to. And that's actually in itself good. Yeah. You know, it'd be pretty yeah. more expertise, I guess. Yeah. Of course, what we have seen in recent years, though, is more and more people prepared to challenge expertise. Well, they did their own research. Well, with, with fewer and fewer <laughs> bits of evidence, yeah. if I could put it like that. And when, I could... when I say did their own research, I mean Googled something and had a look on Facebook. Well, yeah, if, yeah. yeah I'm being polite about this, of course. Um, and we see it, uh, <laughs> because I'm nothing if not polite, we see it, we've seen it in Parliament for years to some extent. Um, we hear it in conversations all the time. We've all got the annoying person that's going to be at Christmas lunch who's going to be an expert on something and be wrong. You know that's going to happen. Um, and social media, of course, is just right with faux expertise or the complete blatant disregard for it. I think that's an important thing to note because what social media has given us, and not just social media, but it's a nice technical opportunity, it's given massively more opportunities to express an opinion and do it loudly and often in an echo chamber with very few repercussions. <laughs> there are no consequences no for this, consequences. generally speaking. In fact, you're rewarded for doing that. You're rewarding, <laughs> rewarded for the noise you make and the reaction you draw. Um, experts, actually actual discipline experts, don't have that luxury because they are accountable to each other. So you can't go in there and throw out a totally evidence-free, logic-free position just because you think you like it or it suits you because other experts will soon let you know. Um, so that's troubling if you like um uh, now before we before we get dive, dive further into this let me note one one quick group there's a group of people who probably get a lot of flack those are politicians because they, tra they straddle the boundary of needing to know stuff because they're in charge of things but also not really being experts in very much at all <laughs> should we take a break and come back to politicians yeah that's it well we can because we can let people just do on that one because yes, that one that's you think about that so course. just some important station announcements folks and we'll be back in just a moment when chris is going to shellac some politicians triple r Yeah, you are on Triple R, folks. Chris KP was just uh, shellacking a few politicians. Back to you, Chris. I'll try to be nice. Um, uh, so the thing is, look, for as long <laughs> don't, as... Don't, don't try and be nice, Chris. We don't need you to try and be nice. I, I want to try and be so you can see how poor I am at it. Um, it's, it's an experiment. 
Um, so the thing is, for as long as we've had politicians, they've been trying to please everybody, or at least trying to please enough people to stay in power. That's part of the gig, right? Yeah, I was going to correct you on that first comment. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, no, they're trying to please enough people to stay in power. And, you know, and that's, it is kind of part of the job. I don't like seeing it, but I get why it happens. Uh, and what that means is you get a lot of half-truths, you get a lot of selectively removed or added information, mm. um, and the end result can be just less truthful or less clear in a lot of cases. Um, And that's, you know, one of my greatest frustrations is politicians who think they have succeeded by catching you out on a technicality. Oh, yeah. Bugs me. Bugs me. It's like that's not what it's about. Yep. Dick. Anyway, um, so one of the... um, (laughs) Still being polite, Chris? I'm being very... I'm using no names. Until now. Because one of the best examples we've had, and this is, by the way, I think almost genius, is Trump. Because... Mm. Okay, here's the thing. (laughs) The very idea... That, you know, we have facts, if you like, or some shared, objective, observable thing. That's a thing we've always got. You know, mm. you drop an object, it tends to fall to the ground. Yeah. Uh, that's just the way it is. Yeah, it um, doesn't care what you think. It, exactly. It gets darker at night, <laughs> yeah. as a general rule. It's hard to breathe underwater. These are things that we share as facts, if you like. But what Trump basically did is he removed that. Because your thing is, once you throw out the idea that an observable fact is shared or is universal truth in some way, then trust in anything and everyone is eroded because Mm. that's the one thing we had. Mm. (laughs) Up is up, down is down. Once you remove that, it's like now I can believe any belief for whatever reason has replaced truth in a lot of cases. And, of course, who who deals in truth and fact? Experts. You take that away from them, they have no currency anymore. And that's the problem. And they're being replaced by something which is not especially... Well, reliable is the honest answer. So what does that actually mean? Um, <laughs> the problem with that, though, is it means we don't trust... We, look, we've evolved to trust things and people closest to us, family, close mm. friends, people we're used to. Yep. That is one of the ways we've survived. We are wary of unfamiliar things. It's been a great evolutionary driver to some extent. We like to belong because there is safety in trusted numbers. That's just the fact of the matter. Um, and we've also evolved to understand what is going on around us. That is the things, the context we're in, the stuff we can trust, the stuff we shouldn't trust, etc. by making a whole bunch of really rapid assumptions about the world around us. What can you trust? What do I know? Therefore, what can I trust? Therefore, what keeps me safe? The problem is, of course, you know, they are assumptions. One of my favourite examples is that every single human being literally has a blind spot in front of their eye. There's a piece of the world you yeah. don't get to see. It's not, it's not seen. And yet, you don't know it's there because your brain invents a bit of the world. And it does a pretty good job of it. Damn good job. You go and watch yeah. a movie, you see a whole series of still pictures. What you think you're seeing is something moving. Yeah. It's not real. It's fake. But it works for you. So these assumptions are great, but they are assumptions. Um, We fill in the gaps all the time. One of the most fascinating areas of understanding human behavior is understanding what they are. And we do them all the time. And this is where cognitive bias kicks in. Um, It's that idea that there are things that drive your behavior or your way of thinking that are based on not necessarily the truth. Mm. Or more more importantly, they are less easy to influence by fact or observation than just by what the driver is. Um, It's, you know, why do you keep Barry from a football team that keeps losing? I could ask you in that question, Um, you know, (laughs) uh, you know, and... and That's, That's harsh. Low. But I won't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but he, can't, he can't stop himself. It's just the thing he does. And I do too. You know, the difference is my team wins. But it's, you know, but it's, it's, it's one of those things that you keep doing. So the, the, and there is a list of biases as long as you're armed. Um, normalcy bias, for example, is the refusal or the, the refusal to plan for or react to a disaster just because you haven't seen it before. 
Mm. Hello, climate change. How are you? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, proportionality bias. The tendency to assume that big events have big causes. Conspiracy theories come from this. It can't mm. possibly be because I use my car too much. It's because the government's out to get me. It mm. can't be there's a virus. It's because someone's trying to bring down, um, you know, the world as we know it. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a classic. This is the tendency of unskilled individuals to overestimate their ability and the tendency of experts to underestimate their own ability. Yep. They're constantly going, oh, it's not my area. I'll oh, ask somebody else. The, the idiots don't do that. They assume they're experts. And confirmation bias is cherry-picking, picking out the stuff that you think is most likely to support your area. So ultimately, the reason that we like science is because science limits our humanness. It limits our human frailties. It's the best option we have to get around those biases and those assumptions because it demands observation, comparative analysis, deductive logic, and peer review. Yeah. We hold ourselves to account. It's good stuff. Chris KP, a beautiful connection between these various random topics that we thought we were giving Woo-hoo! to you in a, in a way that he could never draw them together, but he has done it, uh, as he often does. Great communicator, Chris KP. Folks, we are going to have to hand over in a moment to the next show. Uh, Dr. Jen, Dr. Ewan, thanks for being online. Great to see you both, and we will see you again next week. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Thank you. Go to Blues. Uh, I'm not sure what he's talking about there. Uh, anyway, the uh, <laughs> folks, uh, we only have one show left for the year. We will be bringing you a lot of science with the, hopefully the whole team online or a couple of them in the studio next week. It'll be a lot of fun. So join us then. Until next week, though, have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. Uh, we definitely feel that's the case. And enjoy the next hour and the rest of your Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.